Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you guys. Good to be with you all. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm Rob Sweet. If you're new to fellowship, we have two primary teaching pastors, myself and Lloyd, and we alternate between the two campuses. And uh, Franklin campus is a week behind the Brentwood campus. So the message you're going to hear this morning, I taught last week at Brentwood, and the message they're hearing today, you'll hear next week. Now, what's nice for you is you get the best version. <laughs> We're all practiced up. And I was teaching this message in the first service, and I started going way off script. And I thought to myself, why didn't I write this? Because this is better than what I actually had to say before. So we will hopefully see what God will teach us through the word this morning. Because as you just heard, it is an incredible passage. I can't wait to dive in. But I, I do want to do a few things before we do dive in. Uh, just to remind you, if you are a guest, we would love to connect with you. The best way to get connected at Fellowship is at that website right there. We have a class the first Sunday of every month called Intro to Fellowship. There's no commitment to come to it. You just show up, learn more about the church, and learn how you can get connected when you're ready to get connected. The first Sunday of the month happens to be next week. So I would encourage you to go to that website, check it out, and you can join us next week at Intro to Fellowship. I also want to say this is the best time of the entire year to join a group, get involved in a study. We've got men's studies, women's studies. We've got fellowship groups for couples, for singles. We've got all kinds of things, and it's all listed right at this website, fellowshipbiblechurch.org slash community. So that's our normal website just with the, the ending slash community, and you're going to find all the information there. I can't encourage you enough now to get involved Get a part of this community. If you're able not just to come on Sundays, but be a part of what we are, who we are, what we're doing, what God is doing in us as we're pursuing our mission, becoming a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart and help others do the same. And then those of you that are giving, that are, are, are part of our worship service through giving, just wanted to encourage you to continue and thank you for that. It is a gift for all of us, you know, my family as well, as we prioritize that and then we get to see what God does through our gifts. It is just a joy to be able to do that together. So I wanna encourage you, you can text give to that number or go to that website. All right, normally at this point, I'd say, by the way, if we haven't met, come forward at the end of the service, but I'm not gonna be available at the end of the service, but it's kind of for a cool reason that I wanted you all to know. While we are worshiping here right now, there is a Indian congregation that is worshiping right next to us, kind of on, on the, other, the next building over if you're gonna go up Columbia uh, toward downtown Franklin. They are the only Christian Indian church in the greater Nashville area. And they recently moved into that facility. There's a, a church called The Grove that meets earlier. And then at 11 o'clock, this Indian church um, called Lifespring meets. They're installing a new pastor. And they've asked me to go be a part of that installation service. What a cool opportunity right next door to us because all the Indian people that God is bringing here in our uh, area, they're moving here. They have an opportunity to hear about Christ through Indian Christians. I think that's so cool. So let's pray for them. We're gonna to get to know them, build a relationship with them. But what that means for me, they want me over there at 12. And so I'm gonna A, try not to go long on my message, which is hard on this text because it's so thrilling. But B, as soon as the service is over, you'll see me. I just need to make a beeline out and I won't be able to say hello, but next week or the week after when I'm here next, would love to meet you if we haven't yet. 
All right, let me get down into it. In uh, the, the book of John, you have this first 18 verses or, or what Bible scholars call the prologue to the book of John. Now, what does that mean? It, it's the introduction, of course, that's one way to think about it, but I wanna give you another uh, illustration. You ever been to a, um, a musical or an opera? My guess is there may be more people here that have been to a musical than an opera. Uh, who knows? But usually at the beginning of a musical or an opera, you're going to hear the orchestra play the overture. And the overture is typically a medley of the themes and melody lines of all the songs that are gonna come throughout the performance. The composer will stitch those themes together into one you know, brief three to five minute uh, piece. It gives you a preview of what's to come. That's what John is doing in his prologue. The first 18 verses of the book of John give us all the themes that he will unpack in the next 21 chapters of the book. Take a look at the screen, and these are just a few of the themes in these first 18 verses. The pre-existence of Christ, Jesus' union with God, the conflict between light and darkness, believing in Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, God's glory in Jesus, the role of John the Baptist, Jesus' revelation of the Father, and there's more as well. Last week, Lloyd covered the first five verses of the prologue, this morning, we're gonna cover the rest. Verses six through 18, you've already heard it read. Uh, I wanted to grab three of these themes and as I started working at my outline, I thought I'm gonna take these themes but reword three of them just a little bit. So here's the outline for us this morning. Witness, verses six to eight, receiving Jesus, nine through 13, and incarnation, 14 through 18. So if you wanna kind of follow along a little bit, and at least uh, structurally, that's where we're gonna go this morning, how the text breaks down. All right, let's jump in. Verses six to eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. I won't spend a lot of time in these three verses. John the Baptist is who's being referenced here. He'll be talked a lot about in next week's text, so I won't say much about John the Baptist. By the way, don't be confused. The gospel of John is not about John the Baptist, nor is it written by John the Baptist. There's two different Johns being referenced. The one who wrote the gospel of John that we're studying was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. We'll call him John the disciple or John the apostle. And he's the author of this text. But right away in verse six, he's talking about a guy named John. Well, it's not himself. It's a different John. It's John the Baptist. The purpose of John the Baptist was to come before Jesus and point out who Jesus is, to point people to Jesus. So that's what John did. He saw Jesus and said, take a look. He's the one. He says, behold the Lamb of God. The words we've already been singing this morning. Behold means look. And John pointed to Jesus and he said, look, he's the one. It strikes me that John was the very first witness of Jesus. John the Baptist was the very first person to point out Jesus and say, he's the one you've been waiting for. John the disciple, as he wrote these words decades later, thinking back, was another one who is now a witness of Jesus and through his writing is saying, behold, look, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. 
And you and I today, when we're sent out here at the end of the service, we're also called to be witnesses, to point people to Jesus and say, look, behold, he's the one you've been waiting for. So John the Baptist is the first in a long chain of witnesses that takes us right up to you and I today. So that's our first theme is witness. You see it repeated three times. If you wanna mark up your text, I encourage you to circle some of these key words. Uh, there's the third one. So that is theme number one, witness. We'll talk much more about that next week with John the Baptist. Let's keep going. Theme number two that we're going to uh, get into is receiving Jesus. I before E except after C, okay. This is so much harder when you're doing this live. Okay, receiving Jesus. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Pause right there for just a moment. Light is a metaphor that John has already used last week's text. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light. Of men. The light shines in darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Then you get to verse nine, our text, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is a good time to remind you that the whole prologue is essentially a narration of a new creation. And so you hear all these words and themes that take you back to the first creation, Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what were the first words that God spoke in the creation? In Genesis chapter one, in his process of creating, he said, let there be light. And so here John is saying the true light is actually Jesus. So yes, there's the light that, that, that warms us and gives us visibility, but the true light that really takes the scales off your eyes and that re removes the darkness around you is Jesus Christ. He's the fullness of revelation. He's the true light. So you have light, you have life, and you have beginning. John is very intentionally making a statement. Jesus is the culmination of a new creation. Or another way to think about it, he's the fullness of God's creation. The climactic point of the creation that started in Genesis chapter one is now coming to fullness in Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse 10. This is really interesting. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Again, creation. Yet the world did not know him. If you're marking up your text, underline verse 10 and then circle the word in the middle, yet. Here's why I wanted you to underline verse 10. Verse 10 gives us the plot of the entire book of John. In fact, the whole story of Jesus, the plot is, is, is revealed. Think, think about this. The one who made the world came into it Yet, there's the conflicts, the tension. The world did not know him. God, the very one who made it all, 
entered into his own creation and the creation did not recognize the creator. Do you feel the tension that's gonna build throughout the book, the, the tension, the, the conflict that suddenly entered the story? It goes on. He came to, it's verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's a reference to the Hebrew people, Jesus's own people. The people who had heard from the prophets for hundreds of years, from you, Judah, the people of Judah, will come one who will save the world. The, the, the people who would have known Messiah is gonna come from Bethlehem, according to the prophecy. Messiah is gonna be from the line of David, according to the prophecy. And Jesus met all these requirements. He met all these things. He came to his own people, and yet his own people did not receive him. More conflict, more tension. So verse 10, he came in the world he made, and the world he made did not recognize him. Verse 11, he came in his own people, the Jews, they did not receive him. Here's the good news. This is bad news, good news. The gospel all embedded in these verses, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There were some who received him. The world as a whole didn't recognize him. His own people didn't receive him. But there were some. There were some who had eyes to see. And to those people, God himself come into the world, his world, God gave those people the right to be his children. Do you see the entire gospel embedded in these first verses? Now, I wanna give you a, a, another sub-theme that, that I'm not gonna major on today, but it's right here in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is the theme of new birth. Or, you know, we use the Christianese phrase, born again. Like, are you born again? Where does this come from? It comes from the Gospel of John. Specifically, he's gonna really get into it in John 3. The story of Nicodemus coming at night. So, so there, there's another theme here about the new birth. Now let's talk about this new birth. These people who received Jesus, believed in his name, gave the right to become children. So how do you become a child? You're born. That's how you become a child. Well, or you're adopted. You know, you're, you're born, you know, you're, you're now a child of, of your biological parents. Maybe you're adopted. You're now taken into another family. But you, you cannot become a child without some kind of Birth, what kind of birth makes us children of God? Not the kind of birth that's of blood, which by the way, is also a way of saying it's not about your Jewish blood that makes you a child of God ultimately. Nor is it the kind of birth that's the will of the flesh. Another way to think about this spiritually is you can't work yourself into the family of God. You can't will your flesh to, to obey and be good and do all kinds of good religious things. That's gonna make you into the family of God, nor of the will of man. In other words, no one else can tell you you're a child of God. We hear that a lot in our society. It's just like, oh, everyone's a child of God. You know, you're a child of God, you're a child of God, child of God. The only one who has the right proclaim that you are a child of God is God. 
and it comes through a new birth or a second birth. Now, I wanna go back to a key phrase that all this hinges on. And, and I, know, I know this is rich, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot here. There's a lot of theology packed into these words. words but, I, but I hope in you right now, it's just like, well, well I wanna be a child of God. I, I hope that's the posture of, of us, most of us in the room. I wanna be a child of God. What will it take for me to be a child of God? Only God can declare I'm a child of God. How does that happen? It happens when we receive Jesus. What does that mean? Believe in his name. Anyone who receives Jesus, in other words, believes in his name, gets the right to become a children of God and you're born again. So then you go, what does it mean to believe in his name? That's the right question. In the ancient culture, the name was more than just the identifier of, of what I'm called. The name was my essence. You know, the name was your essence in the ancient culture, in the Hebrew culture. We talked a lot about names and their meanings of names. So what is the essence of this God-man. Well, number one, what John has already established is, is he's God. So, so I'm, I'm just gonna draw a couple notes out here from, from name. So the name idea is number one, he's God. That's already been established. In the beginning with the word, the word was with God, the word was God. But Jesus's name in specifically, Hebrew Yeshua means salvation or savior. So what it means to believe in Jesus' name means to think the essence of Jesus is God himself and he's salvation. God came to save us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe in his name. And if you believe in his name, then you've received him. And if you've received him, you have been given the right to be called a child of God and you've been reborn, not the birth of blood, not the birth of the, but of the will of God. See how this all connects together. It's the gospel embedded in these first several verses. Now, I've got, I've got to keep on going for the sake of time, but I do want to give you an illustration because the theme of receiving Jesus is gonna become very important in the Gospel of John. The, the first half of John describes the nation of Israel and its leaders who did not recognize him as Messiah and did not receive him. The second half of the Gospel of John talks about the small band of followers who did receive him, who did believe in his name. And so it's a major contrast in John. And, and I wanna tell you this story to illustrate this. In 2007, a world-renowned musician, a violinist named Joshua Bell, walked into a subway station in Washington, D.C. He wasn't dressed in his normal tuxedo that he would perform in. He just put on street clothes and a ball cap. He opened up his violin case. He took out his $3 million violin, and he started performing the most intricate, beautiful violin music ever composed in a, in a way that, because he's such a brilliant musician, would have been some of the greatest violin music you could ever hear in your life. And what was happening behind the scenes was there was a hidden camera because this was a social experiment to see if people would recognize beauty and brilliance in a context they weren't looking for it. Over 1,000 people passed by. Only seven stopped to listen. 
This was the same musician playing the same music on the same violin that had sold out Symphony Hall in Boston, Massachusetts three nights prior. And on this morning, with his violin case opened, Joshua Bell made $32.17. This is the picture that John is describing. He's saying, in the midst Did I lose? Did I lose? Okay, we got you. All right. In the midst of life, the comings, the goings, all that it entails... God himself slipped into our world and the world didn't recognize him. The world didn't receive him, didn't know him. And so I hope what your mind is going, because this is John's intention as he's written this, do you recognize him? Do you see him for what he is? Do you believe in his name? There's two kinds of people, according to John, and you'll see this play out through the gospel. There are those that will receive him and there's those that won't receive him. Those that will have eyes to see who Jesus is and believe and those who... Do not. The question John is asking us, are we so caught up in our own little lives that we miss the one who is life himself? Now, 12 through 13 give us, let me go one more. Whoops, 14 is what I meant. Give us the most recognizable, famous phrase perhaps in John's gospel. No, that would belong to John 3.16. <laughs> but at least in chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's talk about these words. I wanna start with the word word. Lloyd talked about this word last week. It is the Greek logos. It had a lot of meaning to Jews and Greeks. Lloyd did a great job of explaining that last week, but, but I want you to consider this. In the context of the creation story of Genesis 1, which is obviously what was on John's mind when he was writing this prologue, what did the word refer to in God's creation? The word referred to the voice, the speech of God that created the cosmos. How did God create the universe? By means of his word. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a division between the waters. And God said, let the earth bring forth you know, life. All these kinds of things. And God said, and God said, and God said. So what John is saying is he's saying that same powerful word that God spoke to create the cosmos was somehow God and separate from God both at the same time, this mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And now the Son of God, who is the Word, has come and put on flesh. This is mind-blowing stuff. Christians actually believe this, okay? And, and it's, it's so invigorating to go back to the basics of this is what we believe. God became a human being. Let's talk about flesh uh, another word that, that might be handy for you to know, it's the Greek sarks. And the best way to understand it in this context is a human body. It's the literal material stuff that makes me visible and makes you visible. It's also sometimes used of animal bodies or meat. It's just the material part of us. That's, that's what is being referenced to. 
We get the word incarnation, which is our next theme from this word. So you take sarx, which is Greek, put it into Latin, which is caro, and that becomes incarnation. The incarnation is a fancy theological term that means the act of God taking on a human body. I want to help that sink in for a minute. Think about all the limitations a human body put on the word, the, the second person of the Trinity, God himself. Human bodies get tired, bodies get hungry, bodies can only do very limited physical things. I only have two hands, I only have two eyes, get sore in the morning, get ill. God did something so miraculous, so marvelous, so unexpected. John is using the most profound language he can get his hands on to try to describe it. The word became flesh, put on flesh. By the way, what does it mean that God chose to embody himself as a human being? It means a lot of different things. I just want to call out two, just a little application at this point in the message. It, it means, number one, the material part of us matters. We're, we're not just spirits trapped into this icky thing called a body. It, it, there's dignity in the human body. The material parts of us matters. And, I, and I, I'm not saying this, we could all go on health kicks, although I think there's some application you could actually get to with stewarding our bodies. But I want you just to think about this for a minute. The human body was God's chosen vessel for his image, Genesis chapter one. Then the human body was God's chosen vessel for his son, John chapter one. Jesus still has his human body. He didn't let go of that when he ascended back into heaven. When you and I see him someday, we will see him in a physical body with the scars still on his hands. The human body matters. It has significance. What does that actually really mean for us? I'll just say one thing. Physical presence matters. And I think that's probably never been more important to hear than in our digital world. I'm not against technology. I'm grateful for the way that technology can connect us, but make no mistake, you're not really present with someone through pixels, through ones and zeros going across the screen. We all experienced that, I think, some during the pandemic. You know, it's like what, and this is not political at all, I, I promise you, but, but what, what kept we hearing over and over and over and over is social distance, social distance, social distance. And I'm like, no, like I, I, for a period of time, yes, let's, let's, let's do this together for this period of time. But I'm like, no, we need to be together. We need to be incarnated together because the human body matters, physical presence matters. So it matters that you're here this morning. And the, I know we've got folks watching online. I'm glad you're watching online because you can't be here. I hope you will be here if you can be here. This is why we gather in small groups. This is why we, we wanna do as much as we can in the physical presence of one another. There's something about presence that's irreplaceable through technology. Now, picking back up with verse 14, let's see it in context. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, man. I, look at all these verses I have to cover today. Come on, this is, uh, I don't want to go uh, too fast, but we got to cover some ground. Um, just, just, just keep talking about, keep thinking about key words here. If you were to translate literally the word dwelt from the Greek, it would be tabernacled. Tabernacled. That just means God set up a tent. God set up a, a dwelling place. And it's not insignificant that it's the word tabernacle because the Hebrew people associated that with the presence of God in the wilderness. What made them distinct from all other people is God himself was with them. And he revealed himself through a fire. He revealed himself through a cloud. But, but those things were just images. They weren't actually God. John is saying, in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself, the true tabernacle, came to dwell, came to live with us. And we have seen his glory. His glory wasn't veiled by the cloud like it was in the wilderness thousands of years before. His glory was seen by us. Glory as of the only son from the father. And, and what did the glory of God teach us? That God is full of grace and truth. God is full of grace. And God is the one true thing in a world that's hard to trust. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist was older than Jesus by a few months, but he recognizes Jesus existed before he was born. Verse 16, for from his fullness, Jesus Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You're gonna see this word. Let's just circle it again, grace and truth, key theme that's gonna come out in the book of John. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth. There it is again, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So much here. You can almost see John stretching the human language to describe the richness of the truth that is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. How's that possible? John's struggling with his words. No one's ever seen God. God's spirit, he's invisible. No, he actually has a tangible body. And he's God. And he's distinct from God because he's a separate person from God the Father and God the Spirit. But he's God and they're one essence and they're distinct. And it's the mystery of the Trinity and it's wonderful and beautiful and we cannot fully comprehend it. What John seems to be getting after here is anyone who encountered Jesus Christ in around 8030 to 8033 or any time when he was a boy or a teenager, they were encountering God himself. They laid eyes on God. Can't see God. But Jesus made him known. Jesus was visible. Jesus was tangible. How was he visible and tangible? He had a body. What does that mean for us? God made himself accessible. He made himself seen. He could be touched. He could be embraced. He's accessible to us. And, and we'll get to our situation today because we can't touch him or see him, right? He's not with us currently in, in the flesh, in the body. 
We'll get to that in a little bit. Here's what I wanna do to apply this. Last week, if you were here, you, you missed, uh, or if, if you were here, you didn't miss this. If you weren't here, you did. Lloyd used uh, some, some images of space and the cosmos to kind of create in us this awe about the fact that Jesus is God. And, and that was the main idea from last week's message, so simple, but so profound. Just like the words that John is using here. He, he wrote simple words, yet they're so profound. Jesus is God. And Lloyd put this image on the screen. Let me tell you what this is. This is a, a deep space image from the Webb telescope. A deep field is, is what they call these images. The Webb telescope is, is the new one. It's currently the most powerful telescope. And what you're looking at here, um, Lloyd explained it last week, if you could take a grain of sand and hold it at arm's length and look up in the night sky, that little space that the grain of sand blocks in the night sky, that's this spot. That's how big this spot is. It's a tiny little speck of space from our perspective. And yet when the Webb telescope peered into that spot, it saw that, and those aren't stars, those are galaxies. You know how many stars on average are in a single galaxy? 100 billion. Do you know how many galaxies they found in that one little view into deep space? 10,000 galaxies. I can't do that math, 10,000 galaxies times 100 billion stars, countless planets, grain of sand, Jesus is God. Now, I wanna give you one more image that's gonna tie in and connect. This one doesn't look as beautiful, but anybody know what this is? That's Earth. Now, let me tell you how this picture was taken. Late 70s, Voyager spacecrafts took out, their, took off. Their, their goal was to take close-up images of the planets moving from Earth outward. We'd never had close-up images until the Voyager spacecrafts, Voyager 1, Voyager 2. And most of the images you've seen of those planets come from Voyager. But after they finished their, their last photos of the planet, they kept going out into uh, uh, um, uh, the far space beyond, to interstellar space. And they turned around toward Earth and took one more image. This is like on the edge of our planetary system, you know, of our solar system. Looking back at Earth, I, I think it was 14 billion miles away. That, that might be around the number that this is. Now, as you just look at that, this, this photo has become known as the pale blue dot. It's a famous image. I wanna give you a quote from Carl Sagan. Probably the only time I'll ever quote from Carl Sagan, a famous um, astrophysicist and atheist. This is what he wrote about this image. Consider that dot. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor, explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. Carl Sagan saw in the pale blue dot a testimony to man's insignificance. God saw in the pale blue dot 
a people worth rescuing. Of all the worlds in the universe, why would he do something so spectacular on our pale blue dot? God himself took on a body. After thousands of years working in the Old Testament with hard-hearted people, you might've thought God would move on, create some other group on some distant planet. But instead, in the person of Jesus, God came to us. And this is the main idea of our text this morning. God came to us. Why would God do that? Because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. I'm going to read an excerpt of our text. I'm gonna reread it to you in a moment and I, because I want you to reflect on it. And I'm gonna put on the screen two questions that I want you to consider as you hear the text read one more time. What does this text say about the heart or nature of Jesus? This is a question straight from the bookmark that we've given you with our application questions. We'll keep coming back to those throughout the series. And then there's a second question this morning too. What does that mean for me? And, and, and I wanna encourage you to dig into these questions whether you believe in Jesus or not. Because I think God's spirit wants to speak to us through this text this morning about the heart and nature of Jesus and what it means for us. Consider these questions as I reread our text. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the living word of God for us today. I wanna encourage you to take out your communion elements that you received when you walked in. If you didn't get one, you can just get up right now. Don't hesitate to do that. I really want you to be a part of this. If, if you're someone who's put your faith in Jesus Christ, I, I want you to be with us in this this morning. Phil, I left mine on my seat. Would you mind grabbing it for me? Thank you. So as some of you are making your way to the back, let me just explain what this is and put it in the context of our passage this morning. Don't, don't eat it yet, but you're welcome to peel back that first layer to get the bread out. Where are we in this story? 
where are we in this passage? It's easy for me to read the words of John and think, oh, if only I could have been where John was, when John was. If only I could have seen him, touched him, embraced him. It's interesting, of all the followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years, only a tiny, tiny fraction of the followers of Jesus actually got to see the body of Jesus yet. I think Jesus knew this. And so on his very last night with his disciples, he gave us some. I think it was more for us than it was for them. He took something tangible from the table where they were eating, something that could be seen and touched and even tasted. And he imbued it with great meaning. He took the bread and he said, this is my body. And he went on to say, whenever you eat it, Remember me. In, in other words, it's something tangible that all generations of Christians will have to hold on to until they too get to see him in the flesh. Praise God for this gift. If you have received Jesus Christ, in other words, if you have believed in his name, this is for you to remind you of the body of Jesus Christ that God is accessible. Let us eat with joy. After he broke the bread and passed the bread around, he then picked up the cup that would have been on the table. And in that cup was wine. They were celebrating the Passover feast. And that wine had a lot of different significant moments and meanings within the context of the Passover, but Jesus gave it its most significant meaning of all. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You know what the word covenant means? Relationship. Relationship. You can't have a relationship with, with, with someone that, that's not tangible, that, that you can't relate to. How can you relate to God? You relate to God through Jesus Christ. He's the image of God. And he gives us this to hold on to and remember until we see him with our own eyes. Let's celebrate as we drink the cup. Father, I thank you for this tangible symbol that you have given us to remind us that Jesus is real. Jesus is tangible, and that means God is accessible. And I, and I know people are at various place, places right now in their faith journey. I pray for those who have no faith or weak faith. Would you bless them by your spirit with faith to believe? And then I pray for those that have medium faith, that you would increase that faith, that, that they can hold on to you through these moments in their lives when they just want someone with skin on, that they would remember you have skin on. And I pray for those with strong faith, that they would be able to encourage others and they would be able to multiply what you've given them. And we come together, all these different places as a body, and we want to sing and respond and thank you. And we will do that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Let's all stand together as we sing.